0: Welcome to Off The Record. We are officially in double digits if you're listening to this episode. It has been a really fun 10 weeks so far. We're going to keep going. You can find us at offtherecord.fm. We keep updated there with our show notes, so if you're listening along to this show and you say, hey, I want to check out that link about something Jesse and I talked about, head over there. You can also leave us feedback in the form of email or Tumblr asks or whatever, and we might include that in the show. So thank you guys for listening. It's been so fun so far. Also, just to throw in there, if you go to iTunes and look up Off the Record Podcast, leaving a review is a huge help. It helps more people find us, so that'd be great as well. Anyway, just a little quick follow-up. Uh, we talked some more last week and probably the weeks before that about vinyl reissues. I had one more question uh, from a listener just how we went, how Bad Timing Records went about contacting Sony uh, to do the acceptance and Valencia reissues, the simple answer is is a really miserable process. Jesse probably knows as well that just dealing with major label people, regardless of if they're nice or not, regardless of if they're evil people or not because they're at a major label, getting in touch with them doesn't matter what kind of person they are. It's going to be difficult, and it's kind of impossible um, we got really lucky. Someone that we knew was interested in doing this acceptance reissue before us, and they they lost interest, and Thomas was talking to them and we kind of just went for it instead. Uh, meaning we were we were handed contact info from someone else. And when it comes down to major labels, you need to get in touch with their licensing and their marketing departments and all that. And there's no, you know, there isn't a run for coverrecords.com where you can go and you can email Jeff. It's not like that at major labels, unfortunately. So I, don't, I just don't have great advice about how to find someone uh, at some random label. If you have any questions, you can feel free to email me at any of my 1,000 email addresses, and I'll, I'll be glad to point you in the right way. But dealing with ma- major labels is just not a really fun experience, right, Jesse? <laughs> <laughs> I think that puts it very nicely. There's just a lot of red tape. And a lot of, it takes 10 weeks to answer something, and that is always the worst. Uh, And then just another quick add-on to that question. Someone asked if we had to get, Thomas and I had to get an S-Corp in order to even talk to Sony. No, we didn't. That's just, we needed to get the S-Corp if we wanted to move forward with actually uh, manufacturing the vinyl. So it was good that we started doing that early, because by the time we needed to manufacture it, we had all our ducks in a row. And that's it for follow-up. Uh so I think of this last week the most exciting or not really exciting but the most frustrating source of event was
1: uh this band Upon a Burning Body. Had you ever heard of them before? I had not, but I was after I heard their new song I wish I had not heard of them after it too. Interesting.
0: I didn't listen. That's the that's the difference between us. I just I just said, you know, I can see their band logo is the same logo of all the other 100 metalcore bands on that one festival. I'll never know any of the bands playing because they all look exactly the same. And I didn't listen.
1: (laughs) I I like to know my um, trollcore and, you know, know how horrible it sounds. Plus, you know, I'm always hitting play in case it's as terrible as Falling in Reverse or Attila so I can get a good laugh. You know, I watched Falling in Reverse at Warped Tour yesterday and it was great. It was everything I wanted. Did you blow kisses at your boy, uh, Ronnie? You know, I was not allowed
0: on stage, but <laughs> he dropped a he dropped a he dropped a line in the second song about go put that in your blog and smoke it. So maybe he knew. You know, maybe he was thinking of me up there in his onesie attire. Aww, I had a onesie on. It was awesome. <laughs> um, anyway, <laughs> upon a burning body. So on maybe it was Wednesday night. This sounds. Right. Maybe it was Tuesday or Wednesday night of last week, uh, Upon a Burning Body put a status on Facebook and Twitter just that their front man had been missing for two days and that uh, they had contacted local authorities and all of that. I had not seen it. Uh, Upon a Burning Body is on Sumerian Records. We don't really cover many bands in that side of the world, um, so I didn't, I didn't really see it. I knew the band name, though I knew of the band, but a few of my friends that don't ever really hit me up about music news I haven't posted about messaged me, and they're like, "Hey, have you seen this? It's kind of weird, isn't it? Just of interest, wondering if I had it, if I had heard anything about it, and I had not." Uh, so I poked around a little bit, and sure enough, there were all these people talking about like, "Is this guy missing? Is he not?" Um, and I got, did you, did you see the original? Tweet Jesse, I did. A lot of people automatically assume that, like, well, it seems like a prank because, it like, the the tweet I think started with like breaking, as if like property Zach had posted the story, right? But anyway, so I in the sense it worked, it worked as a as a hoax. It ended up being a hoax. Uh, the band has still not really commented on it, but the owner of Sumerian Records, his name is Ash. He kind of ripped the band apart in a Facebook post there's been some people like going back and forth about whether that was kind of staged as well, but it kind of read as legitimate as legitimate as that guy can be from stories I've heard of him. Um, but there was just so much back and forth of like, well, is this band so stupid or are they smart? And they posted a song at midnight and that's probably the song Jesse heard, uh, midnight the next day after they got torn apart by the world. And by the time I woke up, it had like over a hundred thousand plays. Um, YouTube now is a different era, but Jesse, like, even before kind of this age, have there always—have you always remember hoaxes, or is it mostly just been since the internet has
1: been a thing? Well, a hoax couldn't spread as fast. Um, me and, um, Fid of, uh, Stuff You Will Hate and Creative Live Fame often talk about this of, like, how—when you hear the crazy things about this of, like, old-school hardcore days, um— you actually have to sometimes reaffirm that the rumors and thing, crazy things like this were even true because it was all the telephone game. And by the time the story got back, it'd be so insane that it was usually a lot of legend and not a lot of truth. Um, I think, though, you know, and I should say this. There was the Internet through the whole time I've been in punk. Like, you know, there is punk chat and alt-punk and alt-music hardcore on Usenet. But, like... It just didn't spread the way it spreads now, and I think that there's the big thing of that everybody thinks going viral is their goal. And what I say all the time, and I write about a bunch of my book, is that, like, why is viral this big goal of bads? like viral ends up being Rebecca Black or Chocolate Rain or Gagnum Style, where really you're just a joke and everybody's laughing at you. And I never get when people say that I want to go viral, I want to go viral, I want to go viral because if you truly go viral it's usually because we 're laughing at you, not with you
0: yeah it's kind of interesting, I think how that has transformed over time as well um, maybe five or seven years ago i don't when i don't know during the quote unquote like neon scene, it seemed like that was really important because everyone had their Myspace. Everyone was either buying plays or getting real. It was all basically like, well, how can we one up this other band? And it kind of like, and the only way I think people started to do that was being like, oh, let's can we come up with something crazier? And it might not be idiotic, like faking a kidnapping, (laughs) but it might it might just be something where it's like, I don't know, just something dumb. Maybe like, who cut Pete Wentz's hair this week? I don't know. But <laughs> but it seemed like that kind of started with a Fallout Boy World and it got just very very exaggerated very quickly. The last like big one I can remember before recent times was like when Fallout Boy put out their last album before breaking up, uh, Folly Adieu, they, like, they did a big campaign, and that was kind of it, I think. And I, I just feel like once we got to Twitter and like Bandcamp and things that seemed a little more grounded outside of that neon-y MySpace world, that it kind of became like a ground-level, natural building thing again, maybe, right? Like, even just with experience with almost Man Overboard, like, you didn't need to do flashy shit that was truly like a flash in the pan, it was just... How can we do things to keep people interested, but also to make it natural so when this fad that we're doing about some virally thing this week blows over, that we don't have to create a whole new one next week? Because
1: that's probably a really easy way to lose fans, right? Yeah. And I think that that's the thing is, is like, you know, people are always talking about going viral when it's really like, how do you do a sustained marketing campaign? We got a little bit into this, but. Um, one of the things I should say is like, you know, like whenever I've worked with a group on making a plan for the record, like we basically, you know, the rule is, is let's do one big thing every month and every two weeks, something small, at least. And in between, we should be promoting those things all the time. And we're going to keep people talking. And like I make a calendar and like this is what we're talking about. This is what we're promoting for these two weeks. And, you know, the big thing each month we're promoting that 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 whole month and that big thing could be anything from the upcoming headlining tour or even a support tour um, on to, you know, a new song, a new podcast episode. We did a new mixtape, you know, whatever it may be, or like a cover song or whatever. Those can be some of the smaller things that are scattered throughout. But we're going to keep doing things to keep people talking, whether it's even just like doing an acoustic video in a weird setting or something like. But you got to keep people talking. And I think that that's the big thing is, is that I think so many people... Kind of blow their load on this viral lead up to their record, where they're getting all this attention. And people can't even buy the record yet, and it gets really, really silly. And I think that that's the thing we need to talk about. Is like, like too, is is like where crossing that line of cheese is such a bad idea. Um, you know, it's so hard to find the sweet spot of what's a interesting marketing idea and what's cheesy and what's just not that eventful.
0: It seems to be so difficult for bands to think about that though. I don't it's I think it a lot of it has to do with a misguided team behind the band. Like, do you want all your merch to be Simpsons themed? <laughs> like, is that gonna is that what's gonna sell for you a lot right now? But then Who who's doing that? You're not gonna have any sort of identity behind that? Well just like I just feel like that's a good I walked around Warp Tour yesterday and there were many different variations of like a Simpsons shirt or you know a, one of like a south park character shirt and it was for a different band that was the thing it's like it's getting to this point of we just need to like you know i see band x with the simpsons shirt so other band is going to be like well we need a south park shirt like it's kind of just mm-hmm. it's a lot less annoying than kidnapping someone falsely but it's just like it's just another way of like got to one up each other in this pointless way that if you think about it beyond the immediate dollar sign isn't going to get you anywhere like i was talking about this at warp tour yesterday with with a friend of just like a few different like current pop punk bands on the tour and like there are some bands that have clearly been building something sustainably and it's growing and growing and then there are a few other ones right now that it's like they are absolutely destroying it in the sense of a lot of fans right now a lot of a lot of Merch, a lot of money, but the the substance of the music isn't there. So when that turn and you know that could be the same band with the Simpsons T-shirt. So when that turns over in two years, and that fourteen-year-old fan is sixteen or seventeen, and they find like a whatever, like a brand new or Taking Back Sunday in between. Like when that band writes that same exact album with not a ton of substance and the same kind of we don't have an identity. Here's just whatever is pop culturally in merch-wise, like. Are you still going to buy it? It's kind of the same thing with that whole neon phase. Like everything was just, how can we make this more purple? Yeah. Sometimes you don't
1: want purple, right? (laughs) Well, even like the silly cartoon monster thing. Like I loved when Thursday did that uh, like generic uh, scene T-shirt and had the unicorn farting money and everything. And it was like. I think that's the thing. Is like bands over and over. And I think this is going to kind of be a theme of this episode of what we're going to talk about. Is like you know, the key is is to you have to really work hard to find things that fit well with your music, but aren't just a bad imitation of every that everybody's doing. It, and you want to innovate. Uh, you want to innovate and not emulate. And you. You know, some of these bands just try to be a part of the scene and do the same things everybody's doing, but it gets really, really silly at times, and it just... It's what makes bands not last. And, um... But at the same time, I feel for the struggle of, like, trying to come up with something new and unique in marketing is... is Takes a lot, a lot of effort, a lot of headspace, and, you know, a lot of observance of seeing what's going on. Like, you know, I... You know, this, um... Band I know called Franchise, they just hit me up the other day with a press release, and they're doing this, like, mobile tour thing. I was like, okay, cool. This is, like, an idea I haven't seen done much, but, and, you know. So what does that entail? Like, they're kind of just doing an internet tour. So they're basically do, doing this thing of, like, you know, for the next 30 days, they're or whatever, they're, like, I don't know how long it actually is lasting, but they're, like, you know, putting out live stuff. They're putting out content as if they were on tour, um, because they can't tour for because they have jobs or whatever, college commitments or something, and so they're kind of giving this thing a shot at trying to make this something. I'm like, you know what? This is great. Like, I haven't seen this done, and this could be an area where like bands, you know, there's a lot of bands who can't tour. There's even, you know, I was hearing a discussion the other day about how all these bands that can't t- tour are now going to just do this steady monthly gigs, and fans can come to them, like. I don't know that that's going to work, but experiment with something at least and don't just do the same things and imitate the same things that everybody's doing. People get so much more excited when you can find an authentic part of your music and intertwine that with something interesting and new. And putting that effort is what separates great bands from mediocre bands.
0: Yeah, in my mind, what I would just say, or what I I think we will continue to say, and I I have to see this from – you know, I, I get to see this now from, like, manager perspective, but then also just always from the site is, like, if it seems like you need to force yourself to come up with something that you think that the, you know, you could have a, you could be a manager and you're 30 years old and you need to put yourself in the perspective of being, like, a 15-year-old that hopefully is going to buy your band's merch, that's, like, probably not the right headspace to force yourself into, right? Same thing with the same thing with the band and you can speak to this a lot better than me and we'll speak about it later in this episode but just like don't like forcing yourself what your 15 year old or 18 year old or 22 whatever age fan wants to hear from your music like it's never it's only healthy for so long and then you uh, focus about it to the point where it deteriorates your work. I was typing up earlier this morning an interview with and Berlin and we, were, we had a conversation about how they went ab- about their last album because that band has had sort of two stylistic markers in their career and whether they wanted their last album to be like a whole, not greatest hits in the sense of songs from the past albums, but like encompassing their whole career as a band, or if they just wanted to push for one really great last record. And he was like, well, we were forcing each other at first because we weren't really sure how do you do something for the last time. But then we just kind of set, we kind of, they were like, well, we realized that wasn't working and we just needed to do what naturally felt right. And that ended up being a better product for them. And sure, sometimes you'll come up with a great random idea that will end up winning out um, and will even maybe be a little fake, but that's often just not the case. I think it's just, if you're not being natural to what you are and what your band might be with an identity, you're never going to have an identity. And I know, and that get, kind of gets into, like, the gross word of, like, branding yourself or whatever. But I think that's so important, especially now when it's really kind of transparent to see, like, you know, if there are 50,000 people following that one band member on Twitter... And they don't seem excited about anything new that the band is putting out, whether that has to do with merch or music or touring. It's probably because, like, well, maybe they're not excited,
1: right? I think, though, there's an interesting thing you, you um treaded on there was—so, um so, you know, I'm 36, and I mostly produce music made for 16 to 24-year-olds. I'm old. I'm jaded. I've seen it all. As we often joke, I listen to really weird dance music a lot. Um, I still have to, and it's the only thing I can do when I produce, is I have to make it interesting and good to me. And it's the same thing with when I managed bands and we were selecting merch, is you have to trust your gut, and the only thing that ever works is trusting your gut, because if you try to do things that you think other people will like, you usually fall flat on your face and, um we'll get into this more later because I think this is particularly pertinent to artists and make, and how artists make good music, but you have to always be just having an emotional reaction to whatever it is in this world of art. And, you know, obviously there's exceptions that business ideas is not about an emotional reaction, but it's really always interesting to me. Cause like, you know, you could easily say, well, you know, uh, you're not a 16 year old, so then should 16 year olds be the ones who are ma- helping make decisions and stuff? But the one thing is, I think that a lot of people really like a experienced eye or ear on these things, and you know, you've developed tastes that are so refined and so complicated. And it's like, even one of the things like you know, you and I have been talking about favorite records a lot lately. And you know, one of the things I really got to thinking about is like, I don't want to say I'm jaded as much as I've developed such a high standard. For things from hearing so much over the years that I'm just not that impressed by very much these days. Because um, I've developed such a high standard that I only really want to hear the greatest things that come out each year. And I think that that's a lot of getting old. And then you get these really high standards. So you're able to achieve something really good. Whereas when you're 17, you're just impressed with everything. And everything's so exciting and cool and new.
0: Yeah, no, definitely. And it's, I've had that struggle with the website in a lot of ways too, where it's like, Mm, what has made the website typically, and hopefully people feel the same way, but successful to me even is that, like, I, I've always said that I put the content on the website that I would want to engage with, uh, whether I, regardless of what age I am, right? That's kind of the point. It's, it's kind of like a lame industry word, but like evergreen content. And that means stuff that is always good. So when I'm doing an interview, I try not to just make them really topical about this band's new single or record and ask them 15 questions about that, because that can be kind of worthless when that album comes out. Sure, if we're talking about why a band member left the band, that's obviously very topical, but that might be something someone finds on Wikipedia 10 years later and finds interest in, and that's what I want, right? I don't want the Wikipedia link, but I want like the... I want what I would want to find when I'm looking at a website for something that I might find there. So if I if I know Properties Act is hopefully really great interviews, then maybe I'm going to read that interview over another website because uh, I know maybe I answer the better questions or maybe Alt Press has better op-eds on certain things, so I'm going to go there for that or, or whatever. But so when creating new content, new, let's just call them features, so whether it's an, like a if we had never done interviews and now we're branching out into interviews, like sometimes over the years I'll, I'll have like, I will be witness to other websites, like whether they're competitors or not doing these features that I think are really great. And me kicking myself being like, like, Oh God, why did I not think about that first? Right? Like, uh, alter the press a few years ago did this feature called like albums that changed my life with bands. And it was, I was like, wow, that's gotta be great for traffic. Like, wow, I really feel like an idiot for not thinking about that because they can get, I don't know, let's say Cassidy Pope because I know she did one. They can get pa- Cassidy Pope to do an album that changed her life and now she wa- and now two years later she won The Voice and I bet people are still clicking about on that two to three years later because she wrote that all the way back then and people are really interested in her life. But then I thought about it more and while I like would still think that that's a really great feature, I probably didn't think about it because it's probably not something... I would want to go out and find myself or that I would, that I personally have interest in. So I think so much about it, like we were both just talking about it, is like doing what you want to do. And I th- I think we can both attest that some people in bands are just there to play their music and tour and that's great. But hopefully there's at least one or two people in the care a band, right. That care sort of about the direction and, not the branding in a lame way, but just, like, the identity because you as a band member have an identity and your band is probably going to take that on in some shape or form unless you're purposely, like, putting on an act. And that's okay, too. And by act, I mean, like, uh, you know, just like some bands go on stage wearing suits every day or some bands go on stage wearing costumes or something like that to me is different than we're going to fake what we're doing your gimmick yeah 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 and gimmick versus identity and that's really important i would say because having having a good identity is should be forever in your career like it's very rare i would say for bands to completely change identities unless they're going through something that is truly life changing right like and a, a recent shift in identity i think would be against me following like laura jane grace's transformation and that's That's not necessarily, I don't know, that, like, that's just something that the public suddenly takes on a new identity of your band. But you're not, like, that's clearly not a gimmick, obviously. But, like, if you see a band for ten years, or let's say five, like Black Veil Brides, right? They wore, like, we took pictures of them. I I should put a picture in the show notes of what Black Veil Brides looked like five years ago, (laughs) right? And that suddenly stopped working for them, so they changed what they did. And that has still been a success for them, but they clearly changed their identity. And that kind of makes it like a gimmick. They, they changed that because it wasn't really working anymore. Uh, and those are two very fundamentally different things. Um, and it's it's so important, whether it's, a website, whether it's like my website or any band that any of us like or love or, you know, all of it. It just, it, ca- it carries everything into what we do and it carries, I think, into the longevity as well. And that longevity is so important for one your own personal goals and achievements but also you know hopefully about making this fun job your career probably right
1: yeah i think it, what I, what i would basically say to close this out is that you know taking that thought seriously and always putting that thought into everything is definitely one of the things that separates the chumps from the pros um that you really have to always think about you know, what makes you special and what you can do that aligns with that specialness. You know, what are your best assets and what makes your personality and what makes you different than everybody and how do you keep accenting that and bringing that out uh, in everything you do, whether it's your marketing plans, whatever hoaxes you're planning to your merch. Yep. Totally. Uh, And so that is a good time for our first
0: sponsor break. Once again, sponsored by Bad Timing Records. Bad Timing Records has a park release coming out on July 15th. That's a week from, oh, God, that's a week from tomorrow. <clears throat> um, and so that you can find that on a 10-inch vinyl EP with a screen it on the B-side. It comes with a book as well that has a prologue of a story, Front Man Lad. Mitchell has been writing. It is very cool. It's my favorite vinyl release from the record that we've done, from the label that we've done so far. We also have a knuckle puck, twelve inch uh, in store that has a screen print B side two, and we are working on a bunch of other stuff as we'll talk about hopefully in the coming months. And you know, Jesse has been busy on that as well. So uh, go to badtimingrecords.com. dot uh, We're just about a year old now, and that's very cool to think. So thank you. Uh, topic number two. What a conflict of in- what a what a great way to transition as Jesse and I sort of wanted to run through what we've been doing that may not be in the very public-facing eye right now, and not in a cocky sort of braggy way, but um, in, a, in the sense of how we're working through things to hopefully create something or bring something back to life or just evolve in what we're doing in, in cool and interesting ways. Uh, so Jesse, you have been, you can sort of pick, I
1: guess, but you've been working on new books, and you've also been working on a new app. It's that uh, that is the case. All while making really cool records right now with Somos, Heyana, Osaka Pop Star, Morning Glory. Um, I somehow have been chugging away on this new book I'm writing, which is kind of all about creativity and a lot about what we just talked about—is how you get happy with the music you make, creative tools to help you be happier with the music you make as. An artist. And actually, I should say this that the book's mostly examples via music, but it's really about how you get happier with whether it's your life and any creative output that you do. And it's uh all the things I've learned as a producer of like really good practices on, you know, just how you develop better art. Like, you know, kind of me just culling together, you know, I've gotten to work with some of the most amazing songwriters in the world and, you know, getting to watch people like Robert Smith and how they go through a creative process. I'm kind of just doing every lesson I've learned, um, over the years about that stuff and trying to put it into a tangible form that's brief and interesting to everybody. Like, you know, unlike my last book, I'm trying to keep it around 250 pages instead of 750 pages and uh, It's got to be difficult. Yeah, well, considering we've been aiming for 250 and I have 210 written and I don't have half my notes uh, checked off yet, it's it's definitely going to be difficult and there's going to be a lot of shedding. But, you know, we shed 300 pages from the last book um, to get it down to 700 because when we f- found out it was 1,000 pages, we are like, well, no one's reading that. That's part of the creative process and that's kind of, we even talk about that in the book. But, uh, yeah, I'm really excited about it. And then I've been beginning to do interviews. I'm going to be doing a podcast all about creativity. Where I interview different people, um, and I've been slowly starting to accumulate those interviews before I launch it. But uh, I'm really stoked on it.
0: And so now that you're working like with this new avenue, so the first book, I guess, would be sort of a stopgap to all things: how to make your band better, or in some in some fashion. Uh, and so with this, well,
1: well. More marketing and management, though, on that side. This is the creative music side, whereas that was the business side.
0: So have you had to put yourself in a completely different space, or was this something that you also considered putting in the first book where now you're just – where you have to stop yourself and say, this would be – like, I can't ask someone to read 2,000 pages,
1: let alone 1,000 yeah, so a lot of this stuff was in the book initially, and we decided to focus the book a lot. Like I just said, we chopped out 300 pages. It was mostly stuff like this. As we took out a lot of the stuff that was based around music and how you make better music, and we took that out. And that's going to be this book. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that it is a different headspace though. Was the last book was a lot of me having to go on the internet and do research, and this book is mostly me pulling things out of my head and seeing examples of how people work through creativity. And then also I've been doing all these interviews with really cool people uh, on creativity and what their creative process is. And it gives me ideas of how to m- make these into these more meta examples in the book. And you know, just different, th- different outlets. I've been reading a lot of books um, on creativity and getting ideas from them and just trying to figure out how I assemble all of that into something. I mean, since we're probably going to be talking about this on
0: and off now for the next amount of months, however long that is, how long did the first... I don't know that a lot of people know this either that would be listening. How long did the first book sort of take to
1: finish and then get out into the world? I started writing it four years and one month before it came out. Um, I will say this, that, you know, so I blogged a lot of the book on Muse Formation. I would just write down posts. Um, I was managing Man Overboard and transit through all that time, so I was just basically taking notes or writing blog entries on anything I did each day and anything I learned. I would just share it with everybody. But the actual... I would say it took me about five to six months to do the writing of the 700 pages, taking it from notes and blog posts into um, an actual book. And then the editing process took about Five months, I'd say, because um, I had five different people read it. Um, it's very was very important to me that a layman, an expert, somebody who didn't care and just read it for grammar, um, and then I had like another musician friend, and then I had Thomas, your partner, and bad timing do the serious grammar edit and make me have coherent sentences. Um, so there was a lot of a lot of process to that, and. Uh, this one won't be as torturous because I learned a lot from it, and uh, but I'm still gonna have like a bunch of different people read it and give me notes, and I think that's a big part of the process of a book. Is it's like it's really important that you know I, I to not be so boasty, but you know I, the, this book's the only thing I've ever done where on the internet there's been no trolling or anything. Like every review comes out great, but we put so much work in to make sure that everybody could understand it really, really, really well. And um, I think that that's a really important part of the process. Um, we started this book about three months ago, I want to say, and I imagine it'll be out before Christmas. But um, Really? Because you know what? It's not a lot of research. It's a lot of just getting things out of my head. You know, I've written 6,000 blog posts. I'm a fast writer. so <laughs>
0: Writing a book, is that would be terrifying to me.
1: No, I couldn't
0: imagine. I'm such a bad writer. I'm, well... I don't know. You're not
1: a bad writer. Well, I'm
0: I'm bad at I'm bad at writing. Both compare ourselves to mm -hmm. like I'm bad at I'm bad at getting myself to write. Maybe that's a better thing. Sure. And so I I cannot fathom. I have so many things where it's like I'm gonna write a blog about it, and this is everyone's problem. Who wants to be a who would like to blog? Right? It's like got this great idea. I'm gonna write a blog about it, and then that never happens. And then I think about that in the sense
1: of writing a book, and then I would cry. I think. <laughs> well, but, but so to get into like some of what I write about in this book is that's just a muscle. And just like when you're exercising, you have to force through when that muscle's painful. Um, and it starts getting sore. You have to keep going and pushing for that reward. It, it's just a muscle and you have to do it. And like the other thing is too, is you have to write a lot of bad things. There's so many times I've written blogs for you and your site um, where I do like, you know, five to 10 paragraphs. I write and erase them two to three times sometimes and sometimes like I'll, you know, I'll write you a book. I have this idea. It's, I haven't figured out how to say it yet and I'll write it three or four times. I put a lot of effort into how to do it. And it's the same thing. Like there's so many passages of this book I've already rewritten six times to try to get it more coherent and find the like really good metaphor and the really good, how meta should I get with it compared to how micro and, you know, do I want to go trees or do I want to go forest with the idea? And like, All that stuff's really important And figuring out how to do it Um, That's part of the process And you just have to kind of do it I could also recommend um, Neil Strauss Who wrote like The Motley Crue book And like The Marilyn Manson book And he's like One of the greatest writers Of all time He did a really great uh, One on Tim Ferriss's podcast About When you're getting Daunted at writing Some tricks he uses to do it. And he always says, you know, while he may be a New York times bestselling writer, he's just, he's a terrible writer who's terrible at doing it. And, but he's learned a lot of tricks for his mind to get good at it. Yeah, totally.
0: Yeah. It is about tricks. I think even, I mean, that's for any, any kind of creative thing or probably anything really, but any kind of creative thing is just, yeah, you know, it's what you want to do. Hopefully you're passionate about it, but that doesn't necessarily mean it comes easy. Um, yeah.
1: Yes, totally. And, and did, so the other thing I'm doing is. Um, I've been working with an app called HiArt, which is H-I-A-R-T. That'll be in the show notes. Yes. Uh, So we make, uh, or I should say they make, since I don't technically work for the company as much as I just, I'm helping them with sales. I'm connecting them with musicians who want to make emoji, basically. It's basically emoji you can send to any of your friends. You buy a pack from a group. We got a lot of really cool groups who are working on their stuff to come out right now. We already have stuff up from Jason Derillo and Ghostface Killer, and um, there's a lot of other cool ones to come, but we basically just digitize designs bands already have and make it so fans can send it to each other in emoji form. And uh, it's really exciting. We're Some of the stuff that's coming out is really cool, and uh, yeah, it's really fun, because I feel like it's a new frontier. It's like, you know, when... You know you've never been able to like make money off of digital art before, and this is a cool way of like you know you got that cool merch design that kids are loving you got that cool lyric um for your bands you know you make it into a little cartoon design and now you can make money for it because you know we're selling a lot of emoji packs from people, and people want that to be able to send to each other
0: and so you are you just enjoying like thinking about? who then would work well for that or like what
1: well because there are a lot of bands in theory i guess that would work well right i think it actually works for everybody but maybe that's just me believing in this um i think it's you know it's just like that funny thing of like you know that popular lyric all the kids sing put it into a font and put it in your emoji pack put your logo into a font maybe draw a cartoon of your of the band members and doing something. Like, there's so many possibilities. It's such a cool new avenue. What excites me about this. Um, so, my good friend Paul, who is in a band called Indecay and uh, American Distrust, that came up with this, when he told me this, I was like, you know what? I just want to help out and, you know, um, get this idea spread because I think it's a really exciting um, new cool thing and uh, could really be an interesting way of bringing another avenue of income into bands. I mean, it's, you know, basically, free money for bands and something fun that people could enjoy and get something out of for very little money. Yeah, and that is mm, that is kind of the trick of getting revenue for a band.
0: New re- yeah, that's like new revenues for bands is kind of a very interesting thing because we still haven't really seen any truly new revenues in so long uh, besides streaming, yes. but that only cuts away at some other stuff. So, it, yeah, it, yes. could be, it could be we're, really we're, curious. We're going to talk this, about that more yeah, and more. We will. <laughs> just be curious if that kind of picks up. But, yeah, So you have a new job. I do have a new job. Hi, I am the label manager for JTree Records. Um, <laughs> So awesome. So awesome. So yeah, so I don't know who would know. It's not something I'm really bragging about on the internet too much. But uh, JTree Records is, uh, hopefully everyone knows what JTree is, because uh, that would make my job easier. But JTree is, I would say, one of the mo- I mean... What would you say? One of the most influential or notable
1: punk hardcore indie labels, right? I would say that they were the most influential label of the sound of punk emo and indie in the nineties. That the nineties into the early two thousands, they were one of the labels that was really shaping everything that was is happening now and shaping everything. Like you know, it, it's so diverse. Like you know, you have a group like Lifetime who was the First band that kind of brought pop punk and hardcore together, which now seems like such a basic thing. And there's so many things that have sprung from it. But they were the be- the people who aggregated that into the mainstream. And then you get like a band like Turing Machine, who was like this weird electronic instrumental band. And that, and I hear that band's record in so many groups. And you know, and then you have all sorts of things like promise ring jets to brazil and there's just that that catalog is so deep mile marker like i still hear versions of these bands everywhere i go and they were the people who really aggregated a lot of the cool and interesting ideas in the underground they were the people who brought it to a more mainstream place that influenced a ton of people
0: Yeah, and what's so cool for me about yeah, what's so cool for me about this label is that diversity, and that's coming from someone that doesn't necessarily have the most diverse taste in music compared to someone like Jesse. Like, what I listen to is what I listen to, and sure, like you know, Blink One Eighty Two does not sound like brand new or i don't i don't know what whatever bands i listen to they don't necessarily all sound together but they can be grouped together and what's so interesting to me about Tree, and this is a conversation i had with a friend the other day is just that like you can't put a box around Tree and call them this one thing and i like that so much and i think that's part of why they were so successful when they were at the peak of doing their label is because there was so much for everyone, and those those people didn't necessarily need to be the two same people. And that that that's so cool to me because it's so rare. I think that any label or company has that ability. Um, and so, so what are you doing with the label? What's what's the what, what's the big idea? So I approached the label in January. Um, and to make sure this makes sense to people, uh, one of my teachers at Drexel is one of the founders of J-Tree. And so that has always been my in and my one of the only things I've ever really enjoyed about going to school is just that there's at least one person that sort of gets where I am coming from. Uh, and his name's Darren, and, and I approached Darren with Thomas many months ago about maybe doing some stuff with their label, things that you can probably guess. And that... And I, we sat down for this conversation, and there's two founders. One is Darren, and the other is Tim. And Darren has always stayed in touch with everything because he is a teacher and he's still involved with things. But Tim had kind of checked out a little bit because when they stopped being a functioning, a really functioning label, it's kind of like vinyl was not selling. It was the it was the utter peak of the neon stuff. It like they, there was no market for J Tree to fit in anymore. So instead of sort of deciding they needed to sign a neon weird punk band which probably didn't exist like they didn't want to compromise their integrity to doing what they loved so they kind of just cooled down for years um, and when I had this meeting with them Tim did not really realize fully that there are all these bands like a even like a modern baseball or a title fight or a tiger's jaw where it was like truly still coming from the ground up in a way that had kind of disappeared uh, at the later years of Jade Tree's first run. And from that meeting on, uh, Darren told me that Tim basically went home and over the course of the next 24 hours sent him, like, 20 emails about, like, whoa, did you see this band and this band and this... And they, were, they just got really excited again. So six months later, like, I, I had a conversation with them and... Uh, their, their person that had been running their label and a label manager formed to make sure that all the lights were still on, even though they weren't releasing new music. And so that means like keep paying royalties 10 years later. Um, that person would have to be leaving. Uh, and I said, well, what about me? And so here we are. So this will be a conversation that hopefully we can talk about in exciting ways in months to come and years to come. But, uh, what I'm focused on doing is sort of bringing J-Tree back in a way that stays true to what they always have been at heart because that's, to me, what's so cool about the label, like I just said a little bit ago, but to also bring them into the present as well. Uh, so if if you notice, like, a month ago, J-Tree put all of their 135 records on Bandcamp for $5, uh, and that's something that I brought up because... Uh, You know, we've talked about it kind of in in excess in in these 10 episodes about, like, that's what Run for Cover does when an album leaks. And so in my mind, it was, well, why don't we put everything up here for just five bucks because it's all back catalog stuff. Maybe there's a kid on Bandcamp who doesn't know who Lifetime is or who doesn't know who the Promise Ring is, but they like a You Blew It or a Modern Baseball, and maybe some of that will connect. So there are these things like bringing the label into the present with something as simple as... Bandcamp, but that created like a really big ripple. I don't know if you saw Jesse, but like within two weeks, Pitchfork, AV Club, yeah. Brooklyn Vegan, and other sites had all written these love letters to J Tree about their back catalog, and like here are the ten best things that you don't know about J Tree, and you can get them for five bucks. So it was really cool. Like at this point, we actually don't even have a publicist working for the label yet. So all these articles were no one asked any of these articles to be written. They just went out on their own. And so what I want to do is sort of leverage Jade Tree's past in a really cohesive way that makes sense for prior fans of the label and hopefully future fans of the label as well. And again, that that will include, with no timeline in set, in set in Stone yet, but that will include like reissues of the releases you can imagine that should be reissued and signing new bands, but also doing, uh, like doing seven inches and other releases with other bands, uh, that are on other labels. And there's so much to work with and that's, what's so cool. Um, I just get to hopefully like work with all these bands that are even outside of my scope of current knowledge. And I get to also expand myself and hopefully that will help other areas of my life as well. But it's just so exciting. There's so much to bite off and that's, what's so stressful. Um, but (laughs) there's so much to work with and I'm just so excited. Uh, like we have to get a new office and I have to learn how to sort of like run an office, uh, in a, in a really like boring, not corporate way, but in like a management kind of way. And that's, I'm kind of excited to learn about that because maybe that's something I should have learned about in school, but I clearly won't ever, Uh, (laughs) Uh, and you know, th- there are other perks as well. Like bad timing records will now be distributed by ADA through J tree. And that's really exciting for us. Uh, and that helps out my other label as well. And it helps out J tree too, because I get to be distro through us and they get to have a lot of volume through us. So there are all these really interesting things that are only going to be figured out more and more almost every day, but certainly every week and every month through the rest of the year, I would say, and surely well beyond that. But uh, you know, I'm
1: now pretty punk, Jesse. So Nice. I'm really pumped for the first time you hear um, the Sex record and the Mighty Flashlight record. I, I haven't heard those yet.
0: <laughs> 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 I've not heard those yet, but I have been making my way through all the things I don't know. And some of this I'm like, some of it's really cool. Some of it I don't like, but it's uh, I'm, I'm so excited and this is something like I have never probably said before, but like, I'm excited to get out of my comfort zone with this stuff because there are bands, like I cannot sign everything that I want to sign to J Tree, And a lot of people have asked me like, well, isn't that a huge conflict between bad timing and J Tree? And it's like, well, no, like J Tree could not sign knuckle puck, you know, like that would not work for them uh, because that's not what the label ever was. And I'm not trying to make the label something it's not. Um, but, me being at J3 can help knuckle puck in ways that who knows how, uh, and, and vice versa as well as, as for, it's another band. So like, I'm excited to get out of my comfort zone when Tim or Darren at J3 send me some band and it's like some weird hardcore thing. And I'm like, I don't know what this is. And then I have to get into it. And, uh, like I'm excited to open my mind as a music fan and, as someone that needs to be comfortable working with all these bands, hopefully. Uh, It's just very, it's very cool to diversify myself now in this stuff rather than in 10 years from now or never. Who knows? But that's like, it's just another cool perk of the job, I think. So that's what I'm doing. We're busy. Yes, we sure are. We do some other things too. I wonder how we do it all together. There's a lot. So as we mentioned earlier, uh, Jesse's book, Get More Fans, you can check out Get More Fans at GetMoreFansBook.com. It's a 700-page extensive guide with the resources and methods to promote your band, detailing everything you need to know to get people to listen to your music and the art around it. There's now 20 more pages, including a bonus chapter on the daily habits you can do to get fans uh, for your music. Uh, and. If you like the book, which I imagine you all will or should, uh, you should also feel free to head over to Amazon and leave it a review because, like Jesse said, there has not been too many troll cores on his comments on his book yet. And so hopefully that will stay the same. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So the last topic we wanted to talk about was um, making good music. I don't know what we should title that. Making music that is... Inherently good is the wrong word, but why don't you why don't you walk us through your hypothesis?
1: Yeah, the the the, the, the tightrope act of how you come up with good music. So we kind of touched this on this a little bit earlier. Is I have a theory, and it's in the new book I was just talking about as well. Um, it's the start of the new book is that over the years, and so you know, I've been my name's on over fifteen hundred records. I've worked with you know so many bands over the years, and um, I've seen a common trait that um, n- when a band makes good music, it's always because they're making the music they want to hear, they're emotionally reacting to it. When a band comes in they're like, well, we're gonna make this because this is what's popular. Those are the bands that I always see. They never even get up to a hundred likes on Facebook and no one cares. But all the bands that make the music they want to hear, there's at least some people who are passionate about it. It doesn't mean that it's necessarily going to be successful just because you do that. You have to get good at making music and you have to get good with doing these things um, that, like, you know, get good with the creative tools that you have and get better at your instrument and all that stuff. But when you make music you think other people will like, um, it's inevitably a failure. And one of the other things I often cite is is this is the tightrope act that you have to walk as a band when um, – So I use Blink-182 as an example all the time of like, you know, you have Enema of the State, you have Dude Ranch, you have Take Off Your Pants, and then the self-titled record, everybody's like, whoa, that's a big change. And it's like, the reason the self-titled record is a great record that most fans accept as a great record, you know, it's my my favorite Blink-182 record, is because they were making the music they wanted to make. Oh, sorry. I forgot I'm with a nerd in my <laughs> midst. Uh, but the reason it's a great record is they made, you know, they couldn't sing about dog farts anymore and they were listening to a ton of Cure records and they needed to make that record. And it was the record they made, they wanted to hear. They had emotional reactions to it and it still worked with the fans. But I think that was the big thing of like when they came back the second time is they kind of tried to make what they wanted to hear, but it just wasn't working as well anymore. But, you know, so you're like, okay, so what do you do if, There's not a formula that's going to work every time, like, you know, that you're saying they made the music they wanted to hear both times and one didn't work. I think the biggest thing is that if you make the music you think people want to hear, it always fails. And that's why bands have to follow through. That's why Radiohead had to make Kid A and get rid of all the guitars. And um, I think that people really don't accept that. But the other thing that happens is, and what we wanted to get into after that is, so... I'm a record producer, and I'm sometimes the guy standing here while the band that was known for their hardcore jam says, I think we're going to do a lot of slow ballads on this one. Um, so I wanted to talk about how we, Zach and I as managers, Zach works at a, two record labels. Um, what do you do when you get a record that you're just really not feeling from a band you loved and you were, you're working with? Like, how would you handle that?
0: Yeah, I guess there's like the difference between... And you were just sort of saying this, like making something that you think the fan wants, but also then like how are you're just saying a hardcore band that wants to do ballads, like, well, like do you really need to do all ballads like like I you know, it's sort of each of our jobs in different ways to be like, is that really how you should be going on uh but that doesn't necessarily mean you're catering to someone that's not yourself, it's just like it's it's every it's about how you frame everything, I guess, and so in in my role, like as a manager, it might not be about truly the 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 actual music that is being recorded. But sometimes it's something as sim- simple as, well how can we get what you are making from the bottom of your heart like get across as great as it can? Um so Lightyears just announced that they'll be releasing a new EP called Temporary in September and about not not really a year ago yet, but let's say in October, November of last year of 2013, there's this long conversation about Okay, well, we probably got to get you back in the studio, you guys, sometimes to record to record a new record in uh, in the early spring, and 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 so Pat, the singer of the band, who's also kind of the leader of the band, was like, "Yeah, okay, we're going to record a new record." And then, you know, we didn't, uh, and you know, maybe you hear me talk about Light Years less than Knucklepuck, and that's because Light Years, beside, like next to making music that I really, really love, is that it hasn't been catching on with everyone that we'd like it to be catching on with. And that's kind of the hard reality of being a manager or obviously being in a band sometimes. Um, so after a lot of conversations with my management team, one thing that came up was, well, do we actually need to make a record? Like what about just making an EP? What if we can make, I don't want to say the best songs, meaning like if there were six more songs on a record, those songs would going to be good. But how can we get across light years to, new people after touring like you know uh, light years did a really exciting tour with neck deep and knuckle puck and was so great for everyone and so after doing that tour what if we release an ep sometime later that year and maybe that'll come across in a simpler way to get those other fans those potential fans on board and that was a really hard and kind of month to two month long conversation going back and forth with Pat from Light Years about like, hey, like me personally as a fan of Light Years and that's the only reason I'm managing you. Truly, like how like I want a record, but maybe what the band needs right now is not a record, and so that's kind of the one end of my job because it's it's really difficult. He it really bummed the band out kind of now we're in the now that everyone feels good because the songs are recorded and there seems to be excitement and all of that but there are decisions every step of the way uh and and those some of them are really easy and some of them are really difficult uh and so i know you brought up the radiohead thing and that's like uh that's a great example like i wonder how i wonder if they were really just like well fuck it we're gonna do this or if it was a really long and hard conversation uh and changing your sound versus doing an EP or an LP is much bigger, but it's it's all it's all uh, just how you look at it in the in the bigger small picture. And for me, like doing having that whole conversation was really kind of difficult because I saw the singer of this band I work with be like, "No, like I need to do a record," and I was like, "Well, like you need to, and I I want you to, but we we can't do that right now for the sake of the band."
1: Yeah, and so. I think that's the big thing, though, too, is, like, so creativity. like, you know, so the reason I became a record producer is my bands would go into the studio and we'd get these, like, hair metal guys while we were making punk rock, and I'd try to be like, turn down the reverb, and they wouldn't listen to me. So I kind of made this vow as a producer that what I do when I hear somebody say something that I don't agree with. So like, let's say it's something as simple as let's put a guitar guitar lead at the end of the song. And I'm like, ah, that's cluttering up the song. I say my piece once. If I really disagree, I might say my piece twice, but at the end of the day, that's their creative decision. And, um, I have enough humility to know that I'm not always right. And, But it gets really, really difficult when somebody, you know, uh, you're managing a band. Um, One of the bands I managed for a short time, um, I really hated the direction they were going in. So I just quit and um, I heard demos and I totally just bowed out and said, you know what, like I can't I won't work hard. I'm not going to be motivated to do this when you're when you guys are changing. And I think that that's even a thing for me as a producer is. I try to get demos from every band because I don't want to work with bands that I'm not really excited about the material. And it's tough because every band deserves somebody to be passionate about their music. And, but it's, you know, there's a lot of money resting on this. You know, I got to pay bills and everything. But I think there's another unsung part of this of like, you know, what about when the band, like, so you and I were discussing, like, this example of an article I wrote a few years ago where, um, you know, the Claxons got sent back to, do, to re-record one of their records because the label heard it and they were like, this is just terrible. And that same, you know, this has happened so many times to so many bands. There's kind of this unsung hero thing of, like, when the A&R, or the manager, like, um, you know, American Idiot, you know, was supposedly stolen the first time. But the inside story I've always heard is that they just... They played it for the management and the a and they went, oh, no way are you putting this out. And then they came out with one of the most classic punk rock records after they rewrote all those songs. And um, I think there's an unsung thing of like how you handle giving that feedback to musicians is because like I don't think the suits always know. Like, you know, there's the famous Wilco story with uh, Yankee Foxtrot that like you know the label passed on it and that turned out to be one of their classic records and i don't it's a very weird line to walk and i like every situation always changes but i think the biggest thing is is you have to say to the band your honest opinion once have them reconsider it maybe then get get a few more outside opinions but sometimes it's also the thing of the band needs to just do the thing that's honest for them and what they're actually feeling and if they fail then that's the trajectory but if they reconsider and say you know what maybe we didn't do this right maybe they did that could sometimes save the band's career right also like you and i can be wrong a whole bunch too obviously and we're, we're, whatever
0: role we're in like i i it's been actually kind of cool to see this with some knuckle puck stuff over over the course of just the this year has been like you know, I will be in a rabbit hole thinking of all these weird scenarios because that's kind of my job. And then I'll, I'll kind of miss the point on something. And I'll have Joe from the band say, hey, like, well, this is kind of just what we want to do. And I'll go, OK, fine, whatever. Like, I just spent a day freaking myself out about this stressful situation. And then I'll go to the band and they'll just know, like, actually, no, we're just going to do this. Um, and that's that. And it's kind of done, and it and 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 then it can be, and then a lot of these situations that I've had, they've worked out for the better, and I'll go, wow, that was kind of dumb for me to freak out about, um, and maybe I'm doing a good job by freaking out about stuff to to myself, but you know, often the bands, if they do know who they are, and I know we talked about this earlier, like if they do have their own identity, they figure a lot of it out themselves, just because. What who they are has connected with their fan base. Um, so unless they're truly talking about creating some gimmick or something for themselves, like, a lot of, like, mm, so much, um, uh, the, you know, the majority part of liking a band is the music. But you also, people can also become, a gr- like, grown attached to the personalities that go along with it, because you sort of get more of a sense of what that music means when maybe you know a little bit about, more about the band members. So... If the band will tell me, like, hey, no, like, let's just do this, sometimes it'll connect because I'm not thinking about it in that way. And maybe you're not thinking about it in that way as a producer either or me as a record label or whatever. But, it, you know, it's very important, I would say, to say that, like, we are wrong too a lot of the time. And a lot of times, like, first instinct for the band might work better. And I think that's something you can tell when if you go at them once and be like, hey, don't love this guitar part, and then maybe it'll work out in the end. Maybe it won't, but hopefully it does.
1: Yeah, and I, I think that that is the thing, of t- too, of it's just, like, a lot of the time, the band can see a vision, and, you know, like, I remember even, like, there was a thing, like, with, you know, I had my ear to the ground writing a music business blog, especially, like, during the days when I was managing Man Overboard, but they'd be out seeing fans in the streets, and there would be some things that they just had more of a sense of because they... We're always out there and really in the thing. And it's like, you know, uh, it's one of the things that, that we talk a lot about in politics, too, is, like, the idea of that, like, these people sit in Washington, D.C., and they only talk to other rich people, and they don't see what's actually happening out in the world, and uh, they lose a grip on it. And I think it really is important to always have that Zoom and con- zoom and consider things. Like, it's um, even one of the things I say to people, like, when you're, like, you're listening for the feel of a song and if something's working right, if like we got a good performance of a song, it's sometimes best to have somebody who's like not a musician, like one of the bands, like, you know, friends or girlfriends who don't even play an instrument and just like, does this feel as good as this? And you play a practice tape and that, and they're not thinking about, you know, really technical things. Like is the drummer rushing? They don't understand those things. They're just having an emotional reaction That could be really important, but then just as important is somebody who knows why. Like, so I'm the type of person I can hear in a song because I produce so many that, like, the reason this isn't working is because, you know, the tempo is supposed to be pushing when it's pulling when it's pushing right here. And that's why this isn't working and we should go back in and record it again. And all those things are really, really important in how you zoom and make decisions. Yeah,
0: there's just so much that goes into this whole thing of making the making the good music and good is very subjective to everyone but I think at the end of the day good is kind of very personal and that's what often makes it so great uh like you know capturing that live feeling versus that recorded thing like is there more heart somewhere than the other place uh and it's it's something that's different for every band every business every person Uh, but so much goes into it and that's kind of like, that's kind of, I think what we wanted to hit on a little bit is just that few, and it's kind of crazy. It's kind of crazy to think about, you know, maybe a band will catch the ear of a producer or a manager or a label because of some, you know, demo, they went into a random studio and recorded themselves with money they had saved up over six months. But then after that, you know, uh, There will be talk with the manager about what kind of direction they want to go in for the next release, and then they'll they'll go in with the producer, and the producer will, you know, do this or that. Uh, And then that final product is given back to the label and to the manager, and then the label and the managers say, well, how do we shape this to the public? And, you know, everything goes... It's kind of weird when you when you dissect it, how many different processes the, label, the creative aspect goes through, uh, the creative process goes through. And, uh, you know, some of the biggest records in the world go through the same things as the smallest records in the world or more or less, but it everything goes through all these different steps and it's kind of fascinating to just think about, like, what if you didn't harp on that one guitar line or what if I didn't say... We should only be selling it here and in this web store instead of that web store. Like it's kind of crazy. It's just so. It's kind of like a butterfly effect thing, where it's just every everything just affects everything else in this creative process.
1: I yeah, and stop, stop stop crushing on your man crush Ashton Kutcher, dude. Come on, oh, love that guy. Love that guy. <laughs> Worst. Worst. Worst
0: dude. Ah. Oh. Okay. <laughs> That's a, different, <laughs> that's a different conversation.
1: <laughs> Do you have anything else to say about... No, uh, I had a crazy week, so I didn't really have much recommendation, but I clicked on the Jade Tree Records website while we were having that discussion, and so my recommendation is to be people should go back and they should listen to that Cap and Jazz discography. They should listen to that band Juno because they were amazing and great early emo. Uh, what else did I see in here that people should really hear? Uh, that mile mark, uh, the New End original record—that's one of the greatest, r- greatest emo records ever made. Pedro the Lion. You guys have so much good stuff in here. Sweet Belly, Freak Down. Go back and listen to this. I will stuff. just put. I will just put Jade Tree yeah, just go back. <laughs> go back and listen to this stuff. There is so much great music that shaped the music you're listening to today. If you're listening to this podcast, that went on from this label. It's just looking at this list again is stunning it was my top two favorite labels growing up for many years well I was going to recommend Four Year Strong because I
0: saw them at Warped Tour yesterday but now that sounds really weird with me having this job so I'm just going to leave in your recommendations (laughs) (laughs) thank you to everyone for listening to Off The Record this week that's offtherecord.fm Check out show notes to leave us any feedback. Jesse can be found at Twitter at Jesse Cannon. I'm at Z and our podcast is at Off the Record FM. We'll be back next week.